At last, within the magnified proximity, everything falls apart like a face drawn in sand, Albertine's face shatters into molecular partial objects, while those on the narrator's face rejoin the body without organs, eyes closed, nose rills pinched shut, mouth filled. What is more, their entire love tells the same story. From the statistical nebula, from the molar entirety of men-women loves, there emerge the two accursed and guilty series that bear witness to the same castration with two non-superimposable sides, the Sodom series and the Gemara series, each one excluding the other. This is not all, however, since the vegetal theme The Innocence of Flowers brings us yet another message and another code, everyone is bisexual, everyone has two sexes, but partitioned, non-communicating, the man is merely the one in whom the male part, and the woman the one in whom the female part, dominates statistically. So that at the level of elementary combinations, at least two men and two women must be made to intervene to constitute the multiplicity in which transverse communications are established connections of partial objects and flows 14, the male part of a man can communicate with the female part of a woman, but also with the male part of a woman, or with the female part of another man, or yet again with the male part of the other man, etc. Here all guilt ceases, for it cannot cling to such flowers as these. In contrast to the alternative of the either-slash-or exclusions, there is the either-or, or of the combinations and permutations where the differences amount to the same without ceasing to be differences. We are statistically or molarly heterosexual, but personally homosexual, without knowing it or being fully aware of it, and finally we are transsexual in an elemental, molecular sense. That is why Proust, the first to deny all oedipalizing interpretations of his own interpretations, contrasts two kinds of homosexuality, or rather two regions only one of which is Oedipal, exclusive, and depressive, the other being anoedipal schizoid, included, and inclusive, for some, doubtless those whose childhoods were timid, the material kind of pleasure they take does not matter, so long as they can relate it to a male countenance. While others, whose sensuality is doubtless more violent, give their material pleasure certain imperious localizations. The second group would shock most people by their avowals. They live perhaps less exclusively under Saturn's satellite, for in their case women are not entirely excluded. But those in the second group seek out women who prefer women, women who suggest young men. Indeed, they can take, with such women, the same pleasure as with a man. For in their relations with women, they play for the woman who prefers women the role of another woman, and at the same time a woman offers them approximately what they find in a man 15. The opposition here is between two uses of the connective synthesis, a global and specific use, and a partial and non-specific use. In the first, desire at the same time receives a fixed subject, an ego specified according to a given sex, and complete objects defined as global persons. The complexity and the foundations of such an operation appear more distinctly if we consider the mutual reactions between the different synthesis of the unconscious following a given use. It is first of all the synthesis of recording that in effect situates, on its surface of inscription within the conditions of Oedipus, a definable and differentiable ego in relation to parental images serving as coordinates, mother, father. There we have a triangulation that implies in its essence a constituent prohibition, 
and that conditions the differentiation between persons, prohibition of incest with the mother, prohibition against taking the father's place. But a strange sort of reasoning leads one to conclude that, since it is forbidden, that very thing was desired. In reality, global persons even the very form of persons do not exist prior to the prohibitions that weigh on them and constitute them, any more than they exist prior to the triangulation into which they enter, desire receives its first complete objects and is forbidden them at one and the same time. Therefore it is indeed the same Oedipal operation that lays the foundations for the possibility of its own resolution, by way of a differentiation of persons in conformity with the prohibition, as well as the possibility for its own failure or stagnation, by falling into the undifferentiated as the reverse side of the differentiation created by the prohibitions, incest by identification with the father, homosexuality by identification with the mother. The personal material of transgression does not exist prior to the prohibition, any more than does the form of persons. We can therefore see the property the prohibition has of displacing itself, since from the start it displaces desire. It displaces itself in the sense that the Oedipal inscription does not force its way into the synthesis of recording without reacting on the synthesis of production, and profoundly changing the connections of the synthesis by introducing new global persons. These new images of persons are the sister and the spouse, after the father and the mother. It has often been remarked in fact that the prohibition existed in two forms, the one negative, having to do above all with the mother and imposing differentiation, the other positive, concerning the sister and requiring exchange, I have a moral obligation to take as wife someone other than my sister, and an obligation to keep my sister for someone else, I must give up my sister to a brother-in-law, receive my wife from a father-in-law.16 and although new stasis or relapses are produced at this level, such as new forms of incest and homosexuality, it is certain that the Oedipal triangle would have no way of transmitting and reproducing itself without this second step, the first step elaborates the form of the triangle, but it is only the second step that ensures the transmission of this figure. I take a woman other than my sister in order to constitute the differentiated base of a new triangle whose inverted vertex will be my child which is called surmounting Oedipus, but reproducing it as well, transmitting it rather than dying all alone, incestuous, homosexual, and a zombie. Thus the parental or familial use of the synthesis of recording extends into a conjugal use, or an alliance use, of the connective synthesis of production, a regime for the pairing of people replaces the connection of partial objects. On the whole, the connections of organ machines suited to desiring production give way to a pairing of people under the rules of familial reproduction. Partial objects now seem to be taken from people, rather than from the non-personal flows that pass from one person to another. The reason is that persons are derived from abstract quantities, instead of from flows. Instead of a connective appropriation, Partial objects become the possessions of a person and, when required, the property of another person. Just as he draws upon centuries of scholastic reflection in defining God as the principle of the disjunctive syllogism, Kant draws upon centuries of Roman juridical reflection when he defines marriage as the tie that makes a person the owner of the sexual organs of another person. Point 17 One need only consult a religious manual of sexual casuistry to see with what restrictions the organ-desiring machine connections remain tolerated within the regime for the pairing of people, which legally 
determines what may be appropriated from the body of the wife. Clearer still, the difference in regime becomes apparent each time a society permits an infantile stage of sexual promiscuity to subsist, where everything is permitted until the age when the young man in turn submits to the principle of pairing that regulates the social production of children. It is true that the connections of desiring production were found to comply with the binary rule, and we have even seen that a third term intervened in this binarity, the body without organs that reinjects producing into the product, extends the connections of machines, and serves as a surface of recording. But here no biunivocal process is in fact produced that would fit production into the mold of representatives, no triangulation appears at this level that would refer the objects of desire to global persons, or desire to a specific subject. The only subject is desire itself on the body without organs, inasmuch as it machines partial objects and flows, selecting and cutting the one with the other, passing from one body to another, following connections and appropriations that each time destroy the factitious unity of a possessive or proprietary ego, anoedipal sexuality. The triangle takes form in the parental use, and reproduces itself in the conjugal use. We do not yet know what forces bring about this triangulation that interferes with the recording of desire in order to transform all its productive connections. But we are able at least to follow, abstractly, the manner in which these forces proceed. We are told that partial objects are caught up in an intuition of precocious totality, just as the ego is caught up in an intuition of unity that precedes its fulfillment. Even in Melanie Klein, the schizoid partial object is related to a whole that prepares for the advent of the complete object in the depressive phase. It is clear that such a totality unity is posited only in terms of a certain mode of absence, as that which partial objects and subjects of desire lack. Consequently, everything is played out from the start, everywhere we encounter the analytic process that consists in extrapolating a transcendent and common something, but that is a common universal for the sole purpose of introducing lack into desire, in situating and specifying persons and an ego under one aspect or another of its absence, and imposing an exclusive direction on the disjunction of the sexes. Such is the case in Freud, for Oedipus, for castration, for the second phase of the fantasy a child is being beaten, or again for the famous latency period where the analytical mystification culminates. This common, transcendent, absent something will be called phallus or law, in order to designate the signifier that distributes the effects of meaning throughout the chain and introduces exclusions there, whence the Oedipalizing interpretations of Lacanism. This signifier acts as the formal cause of the triangulation that is to say, makes possible both the form of the triangle and its reproduction, Oedipus has as its formula 3 plus 1, the one of the transcendent phallus without which the terms considered would not take the form of a triangle. It is as if the so-called signifying chain, made up of elements that are themselves non-signifying of polyvocal writing and detachable fragments were the object of a special treatment, a crushing operation that extracted a detached object from the chain, a despotic signifier from whose law the entire chain seems consequently to be suspended, each link triangulated. There we have a curious paralogism implying a transcendent use of the synthesis of the unconscious. We pass from detachable partial objects to the detached complete object, from which global persons derive by an assigning of lack. For example, in the capitalist code and its trinitary expression, 
money as detachable chain is converted into capital as detached object, which exists only in the fetishist view of stocks and lacks. The same is true of the Oedipal code, the libido as energy of selection and detachment is converted into the phallus as detached object, the latter existing only in the transcendent form of stock and lack, something common and absent that is just as lacking in men as in women. It is this conversion that makes the whole of sexuality shift into the Oedipal framework, this projection of all the breaks flows onto the same mythical locale, and all the non-signifying signs into the same major signifier. The effective triangulation makes it possible to assign sexuality to one of the sexes. The partial objects have lost nothing of their virulence and efficacy. Yet the reference to the penis gives its full meaning to castration. Through it, all the external experiences linked to deprivation, to frustration, to the lack of partial objects take on meaning after the fact. All previous history is recast in a new version in the light of castration 18. That is indeed what disturbs us, this recasting of history and this lack attributed to partial objects. And how could partial objects not have lost their virulence and efficacy, once they had been introduced into a use of synthesis that remains fundamentally illegitimate with regard to them? We do not deny that there is an Oedipal sexuality, an Oedipal heterosexuality and homosexuality, an Oedipal castration, as well as complete objects, global images, and specific egos. We deny that these are productions of the unconscious. What is more, castration and oedipalization beget a basic illusion that makes us believe that real desiring production is answerable to higher formations that integrate it, subject it to transcendent laws, and make it serve a higher social and cultural production, there then appears a kind of unsticking of the social field with regard to the production of desire, in whose name all resignations are justified in advance. Psychoanalysis, at the most concrete level of therapy, reinforces this apparent movement with its combined forces. Psychoanalysis itself ensures this conversion of the unconscious. In what it calls the pre-edible, it sees a stage that must be surmounted in the direction of an evolutive integration, toward the depressive position under the reign of the complete object, or organized in the direction of a structural integration, toward the position of a despotic signifier, under the reign of the phallus. The aptitude for conflict of which Freud spoke, the qualitative opposition between homosexuality and heterosexuality, is in fact a consequence of Oedipus, far from being an obstacle to treatment encountered from without, it is a product of Oedipalization, and a counter-effect of the treatment that reinforces it. In reality the problem has nothing to do with pre-Oedipal stages that would still revolve around an Oedipal axis, but rather with the existence and the nature of an anoedipal sexuality, an anoedipal heterosexuality and homosexuality, an anoedipal castration, the breaks flows of desiring production do not let themselves be projected onto a mythical locale, the signs of desire do not let themselves be extrapolated from a signifier, transsexuality does not let any qualitative opposition between a local and non-specific heterosexuality and a local and non-specific homosexuality arise. Everywhere, in this reversion, the innocence of flowers instead of the guilt of conversion. But rather than ensuring, or tending to ensure, the reversion of the entire unconscious according to the anoedipal form and within the anoedipal content of desiring production, analytic theory and practice never cease to promote the conversion of the unconscious to Oedipus, form, and content. 
we shall see in effect what psychoanalysis calls resolving Oedipus. This conversion is therefore promoted by psychoanalysis first of all by making a global and specific use of the connective synthesis. This use can be defined as transcendent, and implies a first paralogism in the psychoanalytic process. For a simple reason, we again make use of Kantian terminology. In what he termed the critical revolution, Kant intended to discover criteria imminent to understanding so as to distinguish the legitimate and the illegitimate uses of the synthesis of consciousness. In the name of transcendental philosophy, imminence of criteria, he therefore denounced the transcendent use of synthesis such as appeared in metaphysics. In like fashion we are compelled to say that psychoanalysis has its metaphysics its name is Oedipus. And that a revolution this time materialist can proceed only by way of a critique of Oedipus, by denouncing the illegitimate use of the synthesis of the unconscious as found in Oedipal psychoanalysis, so as to rediscover a transcendental unconscious defined by the imminence of its criteria, and a corresponding practice that we shall call schizoanalysis. For the disjunctive synthesis of recording. When Oedipus slips into the disjunctive synthesis of desiring recording, it imposes the ideal of a certain restrictive or exclusive use on them that becomes identical with the form of triangulation, being daddy, mommy, or child. This is the reign of the either slash or in the differentiating function of the prohibition of incest, here is where mommy begins, there daddy, and there you are stay in your place. Oedipus's misfortune is indeed that it no longer knows who begins where, nor who is who. And being parent or child is also accompanied by two other differentiations on the other sides of the triangle, being man or woman, being dead or alive. Oedipus must not know whether it is alive or dead, man or woman, any more than it knows whether it is parent or child. Commit incest and you'll be a zombie and a hermaphrodite. In this sense, indeed, the three major neuroses that are termed familial seem to correspond to Oedipal lapses in the differentiating function or in the disjunctive synthesis, the phobic person can no longer be sure whether he is parent or child, the obsessed person, whether he is dead or alive, the hysterical person, whether he is man or woman. Point 19 In short, the familial triangulation represents the minimum condition under which an ego takes on the coordinates that differentiate it at one end the same time with regard to generation, sex, and vital state. And the religious triangulation confirms this result in another mode, thus in the trinity, the obliteration of the feminine image in favor of a phallic symbol demonstrates how the triangle displaces itself toward its own cause and attempts to integrate it. This time it is a matter of the maximum conditions under which persons are differentiated. Hence the importance of the Kantian definition that posits God as the a priori principle of the disjunctive syllogism, so that all things derive from it by a restriction of a larger reality, omnitudo realitat is Kant's humor makes God into the master of a syllogism. The action characteristic of Oedipal recording is the introduction of an exclusive, restrictive, and negative use of the disjunctive synthesis. We are so molded by Oedipus that we find it hard to imagine another use, and even the three familial neuroses do not escape this use, although they suffer from no longer being capable of applying it. Everywhere in psychoanalysis, in Freud, we have seen this taste for exclusive disjunctions assert itself. It becomes nevertheless apparent that schizophrenia teaches us a singular extra-edible lesson, and reveals to us an unknown force of the disjunctive synthesis, 
an imminent use that would no longer be exclusive or restrictive, but fully affirmative, non-restrictive, inclusive. A disjunction that remains disjunctive, and that still affirms the disjoint terms, that affirms them throughout their entire distance, without restricting one by the other or excluding the other from the one, is perhaps the greatest paradox. Either, or, or, instead of either slash or. The schizophrenic is not man and woman. He is man or woman, but he belongs precisely to both sides, man on the side of men, woman on the side of women. Likeable Jayat, Albert Desire, matriculation number 5416101, intones the litany of the parallel series of the masculine and the feminine, and places himself on both sides, Matt Albert 5416 Rakueli Sultan Romain Vassin, Matt Desire 1001 Rakula Sultana Romain Vassin, Matt Albert 5416 Rakula the Insane Roman Sultan, Matt Desire 1001 Rakula the Insane Roman Sultanus, Point 20 The schizophrenic is dead or alive, not both at once, but each of the two as the terminal point of a distance over which he glides. He is child or parent, not both, but the one at the end of the other, like the two ends of a stick in a non-decomposable space. This is the meaning of the disjunctions where Beckett records his characters and the events that befall them, everything divides, but into itself. Even the distances are positive, at the same time as the included disjunctions. It would be a total misunderstanding of this order of thought if we concluded that the schizophrenic substituted vague synthesis of identification of contradictory elements for disjunctions, like the last of the Hegelian philosophers. He does not substitute synthesis of contradictory elements for disjunctive synthesis, rather, for the exclusive and restrictive use of the disjunctive synthesis, he substitutes an affirmative use. He is and remains in disjunction, he does not abolish disjunction by identifying the contradictory elements by means of elaboration, instead, he affirms it through a continuous overflight spanning an indivisible distance. He is not simply bisexual, or between the two, or intersexual. He is transsexual. He is transalivedad, transparent child. He does not reduce two contraries to an identity of the same, he affirms their distance as that which relates the two as different. He does not confine himself inside contradictions, on the contrary, he opens out and, like a spore case inflated with spores, releases them as so many singularities that he had improperly shut off, some of which he intended to exclude, while retaining others, but which now become points signs, points signias, 21 all affirmed by their new distance. The disjunction, being now inclusive, does not closet itself inside its own terms. On the contrary it is non-restrictive. I was then no longer this closed box to which I owed being so well preserved, but a partition came crashing down an event that will liberate a space where Malloy and Moran no longer designate persons, but singularities flocking from all sides, evanescent agents of production. This is free disjunction, the differential positions persist in their entirety, they even take on a free quality, but they are all inhabited by a faceless and transpositional subject. Schreber is man and woman, parent and child, dead and alive, which is to say, he is situated wherever there is a singularity, in all the series and in all the branches marked by a singular point, B. 
because he is himself this distance that transforms him into a woman, and at its terminal point he is already the mother of a new humanity and can finally die. That is why the schizophrenic god has so little to do with the god of religion, even though they are related to the same syllogism. In L.E. Baphomet Klossowski contrasts God as the master of the exclusions and restrictions that derive from the disjunctive syllogism, with an antichrist who is the prince of modifications, determining instead the passage of a subject through all possible predicates. I am God I am not God, I am God I am man, it is not a matter of a synthesis that would go beyond the negative disjunctions of the derived reality, in an original reality of man-God, but rather of an inclusive disjunction that carries out the synthesis itself in drifting from one term to another and following the distance between terms. Nothing is primal. It is like the famous conclusion to Malloy, it is midnight. The rain is beating on the windows. It was not midnight. It was not raining 22. Nijinsky wrote, I am God I was not God I am a clown of God, I am Apis. I am an Egyptian. I am a Red Indian. I am a Negro. I am a Chinaman. I am a Japanese. I am a foreigner, a stranger. I am a sea bird. I am a land bird. I am the tree of Tolstoy. I am the roots of Tolstoy. I am husband and wife in one. I love my wife. I love my husband 23. What counts is not parental designations, nor racial or divine designations, but merely the use made of them. No problem of meaning, but only of usage. Nothing original or derived, but a generalized drift. It would seem that the schizo liberates a raw genealogical material, non-restrictive, where he can situate himself, record himself, and take his bearings in all the branches at once, on all sides. He explodes the Oedipal genealogy. Through graduated relationships he performs absolute overflights spanning indivisible distances. The genealogist madman lays out a disjunctive network on the body without organs. And God, who designates none other than the energy of recording, can be the greatest enemy in the paranoiac inscription, but also the greatest friend in the miraculating inscription. In any case, the question of a being superior to man and to nature does not arise here at all. Everything is on the body without organs, both what is inscribed and the energy that inscribes it. On the unengendered body, the non-decomposable distances are necessarily surveyed, while the disjoint terms are all affirmed. I am the letter and the pen and the paper. It was in this fashion that Nijinsky kept his diary, yes, I was my father and I was my son. The disjunctive synthesis of recording therefore leads us to the same result as the connective synthesis, it too is capable of two uses, the one imminent, the other transcendent. And here again, why does psychoanalysis reinforce the transcendent use that introduces exclusions and restrictions everywhere in the disjunctive network, and that makes the unconscious swing over into Oedipus? And why is Oedipalization precisely that? It is because the exclusive relation introduced by Oedipus comes into play not only between the various disjunctions conceived as differentiations, but between the whole of the differentiations that it imposes and an undifferentiated, unindifferentiate, that it presupposes. Oedipus informs us, if you don't follow the lines of differentiation daddy mommy me, and the exclusive alternatives that delineate them, you will fall into the black night of the undifferentiated.
it should be made clear that the exclusive disjunctions are not at all the same as the inclusive disjunctions, neither God nor the parental designations play the same role in the two. In exclusive disjunctions, parental appellations no longer designate intensive states through which the subject passes on the body without organs and in the unconscious that remains an orphan, yes, I was, rather, they designate global persons who do not exist prior to the prohibitions that found them, and they differentiate among these global persons and in relation to the ego. So that the transgression of the prohibition becomes correlatively a confusion of persons, where the ego identifies with the global persons, with the loss of differentiating rules or differential functions. But we should stress the fact that Oedipus creates both the differentiations that it orders and the undifferentiated with which it threatens us. With the same movement the Oedipus complex inserts desire into triangulation, and prohibits desire from satisfying itself with the terms of the triangulation. It forces desire to take as its object the differentiated parental persons, and, brandishing the threats of the undifferentiated, prohibits the correlative ego from satisfying its desires with these persons, in the name of the same requirements of differentiation. But it is this undifferentiated that Oedipus creates as the reverse of the differentiations that it creates. Oedipus says to us, either you will internalize the differential functions that rule over the exclusive disjunctions, and thereby resolve Oedipus, or you will fall into the neurotic night of imaginary identifications. Either you will follow the lines of the triangle lines that structure and differentiate the three terms or you will always bring one term into play as if it were one too many in relation to the other two, and you will reproduce in every sense the dual relations of identification in the undifferentiated. But there is Oedipus on either side. And everybody knows what psychoanalysis means by resolving Oedipus, internalizing it so as to better rediscover it on the outside, in social authority, where it will be made to proliferate and be passed on to the children. The child becomes a man only by resolving the Oedipus complex, whose resolution introduces him into society, where he finds, within the figure of authority, the obligation to relieve it, this time with no way out. Nor is it by any means certain that, between the impossible return to that which precedes the stage of culture and the growing malaise that this stage provokes, a point of equilibrium can be found 24. Oedipus is like the labyrinth, you only get out by re-entering it or by making someone else enter it. Oedipus as either problem or solution is the two ends of a ligature that cuts off all desiring production. The screws are tightened, nothing relating to production can make its way through any longer, except for a far distant murmur. The unconscious has been crushed, triangulated, and confronted with a choice that is not its own. With all of the exits now blocked, there is no longer any possible use for the inclusive, non-restrictive disjunctions. Parents have been found for the, orphan, unconscious. Double-bind is the term used by Gregory Battison to describe the simultaneous transmission of two kinds of messages, one of which contradicts the other, as for example the father who says to his son, go ahead, criticize me, but strongly hints that all effective criticism at least a certain type of criticism will be very unwelcome. Battison sees in this phenomenon a particularly schizophrenizing situation, which he interprets as a contrary from the viewpoint of Russell's theory of types. Point 25 It seems to us that the double bind, the double impasse, is instead a common situation, Oedipalizing par excellence. 
and although it would require formalization, the other type of nonsense spoken of by Russell is brought to mind by the double bind situation, an alternative, an exclusive disjunction is defined in terms of a principle which, however, constitutes its two terms or underlying wholes, and where the principle itself enters into the alternative, a completely different case from what happens when the disjunction is inclusive. Here we have the second paralogism of psychoanalysis. In short, the double bind is none other than the whole of Oedipus. It is in this sense that Oedipus should be presented as a series, or an oscillation between two poles, the neurotic identification, and the internalization that is said to be normative. On either side is Oedipus, the double impasse. And if a schizo is produced here as an entity, this occurs for the simple reason that there is no other means of escaping this double path, where normality is no less blocked than neurosis, and where the solution offers no more of a way out than does the problem. Hence the schizo's withdrawal to the body without organs. It seems that Freud himself was acutely aware of Oedipus's inseparability from a double impasse into which he was precipitating the unconscious. Thus in the 1936 letter to Romain Roland, Freud writes, everything unfolds as if the essential were to go beyond the father, as if going beyond the father were always forbidden. This becomes even more clear when Freud elaborates the entire historico-mythical series, at one end the Oedipal bond is established by the murderous identification, at the other end it is reinforced by the restoration and internalization of paternal authority, revival of the old state of things at a new level, Point 26 between the two there is latency the celebrated latency which is without doubt the greatest psychoanalytic mystification, this society of brothers who forbid themselves the fruits of the crime, and spend all the time necessary for internalizing. But we are warned, the society of brothers is very dejected, unstable, and dangerous, it must prepare the way for the rediscovery of an equivalent to parental authority, it must cause us to pass over to the other pole. In accord with the suggestion of Freud's, American society the industrial society with anonymous management and vanishing personal power, etc. is presented to us as a resurgence of the society without the father. Not surprisingly, the industrial society is burdened with the search for original modes for the restoration of the equivalent for example, the astonishing discovery by Mitchellich that the British royal family, after all, is not such a bad thing. Point 27. It is therefore understood that we leave one pole of Oedipus only to pass on to the other. No way of getting out, neurosis or normality. The society of brothers rediscovers nothing of production and desiring machines, on the contrary, it spreads the veil of latency. As to those who refuse to be Oedipalized in one form or another, at one end or the other in the treatment, the psychoanalyst is there to call the asylum or the police for help. The police on our side, Never did psychoanalysis better display its taste for supporting the movement of social repression, and for participating in it with enthusiasm. Let it not be thought that we are alluding to the folkloric aspects of psychoanalysis. The fact that there are some, around Lakin, who are developing another conception of psychoanalysis, does not mean that we should take no notice of the dominant tone in the most respected associations, consider Dr. Mendel and the DRS. Stephen, the state of fury that is theirs, and their literally police-like appeal at the thought that someone might claim to escape the Oedipal dragnet. 
Oedipus is one of those things that becomes all the more dangerous the less people believe in it, then the cops are there to replace the high priests. The first profound example of an analysis of double bind, in this sense, can be found in Marx's On the Jewish Question, between the family and the state the Oedipus of familial authority and the Oedipus of social authority. Oedipus is completely useless, except for tying off the unconscious on both sides. We shall see in what sense Oedipus is strictly undecidable, incitable, as the mathematicians would put it. We are extremely tired of those stories where one is said to be in good health because of Oedipus, sick from Oedipus, and suffering from various illnesses under the influence of Oedipus. It sometimes happens that an analyst becomes fed up with this myth that is the bed and board of psychoanalysis, and goes back to the sources, Freud never managed to escape the world of the father, or of guilt. While offering the possibility of constructing a logic of the relation to the father, he was the first to open the way for a release from the father's hold on man. The possibility of living beyond the father's law, beyond all law, is perhaps the most essential possibility brought forth by Freudian psychoanalysis. But paradoxically, and perhaps because of Freud, everything leads us to conclude that this release, made possible by psychoanalysis, will be achieved, is already being achieved, outside at point 28. We cannot, however, share either this pessimism or this optimism. For there is much optimism in thinking psychoanalysis makes possible a veritable solution to Oedipus, Oedipus is like God, the father is like God, the problem is not resolved until we do away with both the problem and the solution. It is not the purpose of schizoanalysis to resolve Oedipus, it does not intend to resolve it better than Oedipal psychoanalysis does. Its aim is to de-Oedipalize the unconscious in order to reach the real problems. Schizoanalysis proposes to reach those regions of the orphan unconscious indeed beyond all law where the problem of Oedipus can no longer even be raised. By the same token, we do not share the pessimism that consists in thinking that this change, this release, can be achieved only outside psychoanalysis. We believe, on the contrary, in the possibility of an internal reversal that would make the analytic machine into an indispensable part of the revolutionary machinery. What is more, the objective conditions for such a practice appear to be already present. Everything takes place as if Oedipus of itself had two poles, one pole characterized by imaginary figures that lend themselves to a process of identification, and a second pole characterized by symbolic functions that lend themselves to a process of differentiation. But in any case we are Oedipalized, if we don't have Oedipus as a crisis, we have it as a structure. Then the crisis is passed on to others, and the whole movement starts all over again. Such is the Oedipus disjunction, the swing of the pendulum, the exclusive inverse reasoning. That is why, when we are invited to go beyond a simplistic conception of Oedipus based on parental images, in order to define symbolic functions within a structure, it is in vain that the traditional daddy-mommy are replaced by a mother function, a father function, we don't quite see what there is to gain by this, except for the founding of the universality of Oedipus beyond the variability of images, the fusing of desire even more strongly to law and prohibitions, and the pushing of the process of Oedipalization of the unconscious to its limits. Here Oedipus encounters its two extremes, its minimum and its maximum, depending on whether it is regarded as tending toward an undifferentiated value of its variable images, 
or toward the force of differentiation of its symbolic functions. When one draws nearer to the material imagination, the differential function diminishes, one tends toward equivalences, when one draws nearer to the formative elements, the differential function increases, one tends toward distinctive valences 29. It will hardly come as a surprise to learn that Oedipus as a structure is the Christian trinity, whereas Oedipus as a crisis is a familial trinity insufficiently structured by faith, always the two poles in inverse proportion, Oedipus forever. How many interpretations of Lacanism, overtly or secretly pious as the case may be, have in this manner invoked a structural Oedipus to create and shut the double impasse, to lead us back to the question of the father, to Oedipalize even the schizo, and to show that a gap in the symbolic would bring us back to the imaginary, and inversely that imaginary drivel or confusions would lead us to the structure. As a famous predecessor said to these creatures, you've already made this into an old refrain. As for us, that is why we were unable to posit any difference in nature, any border line, any limit at all between the imaginary and the symbolic, or between Oedipus as crisis and Oedipus as structure, or between the problem and its solution. It is solely a question of a correlative double impasse, a swing of a pendulum responsible for sweeping away the entire unconscious, and that continuously carries us from one pole to the other. A double pincer action that crushes the unconscious caught in its exclusive disjunction. The true difference in nature is not between the symbolic and the imaginary, but between the real machinic, machinic, element, which constitutes desiring production, and the structural whole of the imaginary and the symbolic, which merely forms a myth and its variants. The difference is not between two uses of Oedipus, but between the anoedipal use of the inclusive, non-restrictive disjunctions, and the Oedipal use of exclusive disjunctions, whether this last use borrows from the paths of the imaginary or the values of the symbolic. It would also be necessary to heed Lacan's word of caution concerning the Freudian myth of Oedipus, which has no way of holding its own indefinitely in the forms of society where the tragic sense is increasingly lost. A myth cannot sustain itself when it supports no ritual, and psychoanalysis is not the Oedipus ritual 30. Even if we go back from the images to the structure, from imaginary figures to symbolic functions, from the father to the law, from the mother to the great other, in truth the question merely retreats. And if we try to envisage the time put into this retreat, Lakin goes on to say, the sole foundation for the society of brothers, for fraternity, is segregation, what does he mean here? In any case, it was inopportune to tighten the nuts and bolts where Lakin had just loosened them, or to oedipalize the schizo where on the contrary he had just schizophrenized even neurosis, injecting a schizophrenic flow capable of subverting the field of psychoanalysis. The object, small o, erupts at the heart of the structural equilibrium in the manner of an infernal machine, the desiring machine. Then a second generation of disciples of Lakin supervenes, less and less sensitive to the false problems of Oedipus. But if the first disciples were tempted to reclose the Oedipus yoke, didn't they do so to the extent that Lakin seemed to maintain a kind of projection of the signifying chains onto a despotic signifier, lacking unto itself and reintroducing lack into the series of desire on which it imposed an exclusive use? Was it possible to denounce Oedipus as myth, and nevertheless maintain that the castration complex itself was not a myth but in fact something real? 
wasn't this tantamount to taking up the cry of Aristotle, we really must come to a halt, in the face of this Freudian anank, this rock. 5. The conjunctive synthesis of consumption consummation. In the third synthesis, the conjunctive synthesis of consumption, we have seen how the body without organs was in fact an egg, crisscrossed with axes, banded with zones, localized with areas and fields, measured off by gradients, traversed by potentials, marked by thresholds. In this sense, we believe in a biochemistry of schizophrenia, in conjunction with the biochemistry of drugs, that will be progressively more capable of determining the nature of this egg and the distribution of field gradient threshold. It is a matter of relationships of intensities through which the subject passes on the body without organs, a process that engages him in becomings, rises and falls, migrations and displacements. R. D. Lang is entirely right in defining the schizophrenic process as a voyage of initiation, a transcendental experience of the loss of the ego, which causes a subject to remark, I had existed since the very beginning. From the lowest form of life the body without organs to the present time. I was looking. Not looking so much as just feeling ahead of me was lying the most horrific journey 31. When we speak here of a voyage, this is no more a metaphor than before when we spoke of an egg, and of what takes place in and on it morphogenetic movements, displacements of cellular groups, stretchings, folds, migrations, and local variations of potentials. There is no reason to oppose an interior voyage to exterior ones, Lent's stroll, Nijinsky's stroll, the promenades of Beckett's creatures are effective realities, but where the reality of matter has abandoned all extension, just as the interior voyage has abandoned all form and quality, henceforth causing pure intensities coupled together, almost unbearable to radiate within and without, intensities through which a nomadic subject passes. Here it is not a case of an hallucinatory experience nor of a delirious mode of thought, but a feeling, a series of emotions and feelings as a consummation and a consumption of intensive quantities, that form the material for subsequent hallucinations and deliriums. The intensive emotion, the affect, is both the common root and the principle of differentiation of deliriums and hallucinations. We are also of a mind to believe that everything commingles in these intense becomings, passages and migrations all this drift that ascends and descends the flows of time, countries, races, families, parental appellations, divine appellations, geographical and historical designations, and even miscellaneous news items. I feel that, I am becoming God, I am becoming woman, I was Joan of Arc and I am Heliogabalus and the great Mongol, I am a Chinaman, a Redskin, a Templar, I was my father and I was my son. And all the criminals, the whole list of criminals, the decent criminals and the scoundrels, Zondi rather than Freud and his Oedipus. Perhaps it's by trying to be worm that I'll finally succeed in being Mahud. Then all I'll have to do is be worm. Which no doubt I shall achieve by trying to be Jones. Then all I'll have to do is be Jones. But if everything commingles in this fashion it does so in intensity, with no confusion of spaces and forms, since these have indeed been undone on behalf of a new order, the intense and intensive order. What is the nature of this order? The first things to be distributed on the body without organs are races, cultures, and their gods. 
the fact has often been overlooked that the schizo indeed participates in history, he hallucinates and raves universal history, and proliferates the races. All delirium is racial, which does not necessarily mean racist. It is not a matter of the regions of the body without organs representing races and cultures. The full body does not represent anything at all. On the contrary, the races and cultures designate regions on this body that is, zones of intensities, fields of potentials. Phenomena of individualization and sexualization are produced within these fields. We pass from one field to another by crossing thresholds, we never stop migrating, we become other individuals as well as other sexes, and departing becomes as easy as being born or dying. Along the way we struggle against other races, we destroy civilizations, in the manner of the great migrants in whose wake nothing is left standing once they have passed through although these destructions can be brought about, as we shall see, in two very different ways. The crossing of a threshold entails ravages elsewhere how could it be otherwise? The body without organs closes round the deserted places. The theater of cruelty cannot be separated from the struggle against our culture, from the confrontation of the races, and from Artaud's great migration toward Mexico, its forces, and its religions, individuations are produced only within fields of forces expressly defined by intensive vibrations, and that animate cruel personages only in so far as they are induced organs, parts of desiring Mach 9s, mannequins. 32 A season in hell, how could it be separated from denunciations of European families, from the call for destructions that don't come quickly enough? from the admiration for the convict, from the intense crossing of the thresholds of history, and from this prodigious migration, this becoming woman, this becoming Scandinavian or Mongol, this displacement of races and of continents, this feeling of raw intensity that presides over delirium as well as over hallucinations, and especially this deliberate, stubborn, material will to be of a race inferior for all eternity. I have known every son of good birth, I have never been of this people, I have never been Christian. Yes my eyes are closed to your light. I am a beast, a negro 33. And can Zarathustra be separated from the grand politics, and from the bringing to life of the races that leads Nietzsche to say, I'm not a German, I'm Polish. Here again individuations are brought about solely within complexes of forces that determine persons as so many intensive states embodied in a criminal, ceaselessly passing beyond a threshold while destroying the factitious unity of a family and an ego, I am Prado, I am also Prado's father. I venture to say that I am also Lesseps. I wanted to give my Parisians, whom I love, a new idea that of a decent criminal. I am also Chambij also a decent criminal. The unpleasant thing, and one that nags at my modesty, is that at root every name in history is I-34. Yet it was never a question of identifying oneself with personages, as when it is erroneously maintained that a madman takes himself for so and so. It is a question of something quite different, identifying races, cultures, and gods with fields of intensity on the body without organs, identifying personages with states that fill these fields, and with effects that fulgurate within and traverse these fields. Whence the role of names, with a magic all their own, there is no ego that identifies with races, peoples, and persons in a theater of representation, 
but proper names that identify races, peoples, and persons with regions, thresholds, or effects in a production of intensive quantities. The theory of proper names should not be conceived of in terms of representation, it refers instead to the class of effects, effects that are not a mere dependence on causes, but the occupation of a domain, and the operation of a system of signs. This can be clearly seen in physics, where proper names designate such effects within fields of potentials, the Joule effect, the Seebeck effect, the Kelvin effect. History is like physics, a Joan of Arc effect, a Heliogabalus effect all the names of history, and not the name of the father. Everything has been said about the paucity of reality, the loss of reality, the lack of contact with life, autism, and athymia. Schizophrenics themselves have said everything there is to say about this, and have been quick to slip into the expected clinical mold. Dark world, growing desert, a solitary machine hums on the beach, an atomic factory installed in the desert. But if the body without organs is indeed this desert, it is as an indivisible, non-decomposable distance over which the schizo glides in order to be everywhere something real is produced, everywhere something real has been and will be produced. It is true that reality has ceased to be a principle. According to such a principle, the reality of the real was posed as a divisible abstract quantity, whereas the real was divided up into qualified unities, into distinct qualitative forms. But now the real is a product that envelopes the distances within intensive quantities. The indivisible is enveloped and signifies that what envelopes it does not divide without changing its nature or form. The schizo has no principles, he is something only by being something else. He is Mahud only by being Worm, and Worm only by being Jones. He is a girl only by being an old man who is miming or simulating the girl. Or rather, by being someone who is simulating an old man simulating a girl. Or rather, by simulating someone. Etc. This was already true of the completely oriental art of the Roman emperors, the Twelve Paranoiacs of Suetonius. In a great book by Jacques Bess, we encounter once again the double stroll of the schizo, the geographic exterior voyage following non-decomposable distances, and the interior historical voyage enveloping intensities, Christopher Columbus calms his mutinous crew and becomes admiral again only by simulating a, false, admiral who is simulating a whore who is dancing.35. But simulation must be understood in the same way as we spoke of identification. It expresses those non-decomposable distances always enveloped in the intensities that divide into one another while changing their form. If identification is a nomination, a designation, then simulation is the writing corresponding to it, a writing that is strangely polyvocal, flush with the real. It carries the real beyond its principle to the point where it is effectively produced by the desiring machine. The point where the copy ceases to be a copy in order to become the real and its artifice. To seize an intensive real as produced in the coextension of nature and history, to ransack the Roman Empire, the Mexican cities, the Greek gods, and the discovered continents so as to extract from them this always surplus reality, and to form the treasure of the paranoiac tortures and the celibate glories all the pogroms of history, that's what I am, and all the triumphs, too, as if a few simple univocal events could be extricated from this extreme polyvocity, such as the histrionism of the schizophrenic, 
According to Klossowski's formula, the true program for a theater of cruelty, the mice and scene of a machine to produce the real. Far from having lost who knows what contact with life, the schizophrenic is closest to the beating heart of reality, to an intense point identical with the production of the real, and that leads right to say, what belongs specifically to the schizophrenic patient is that he experiences the vital biology of the body. With respect to their experiencing of life, the neurotic patient and the perverted individual are to the schizophrenic as the petty thief is to the daring safecracker 36. So the question returns, what reduces the schizophrenic to his autistic, hospitalized profile, cut off from reality? Is it the process, or is it rather the interruption of the process, its aggravation, its continuation in the void? What forces the schizophrenic to withdraw to a body without organs that has become deaf, dumb, and blind? We often hear it said, he thinks he's Louis XVII. Not true. In the Louis XVII affair, or rather in the finest case, that of the pretender Richemont, there is a desiring machine or a celibate machine in the center, the horse with short, jointed paws, inside which they supposedly put the dauphin so he could flee. And then, all around, there are agents of production and anti-production, the organizers of the escape, the accomplices, the allied sovereigns, the revolutionary enemies, the jealous and hostile uncles, who are not persons but so many states of rising and falling through which the pretender passes. Moreover, the pretender Richemont's stroke of genius is not simply that he takes into account Louis XVII, or that he takes other pretenders into account by denouncing them as fake. What is so ingenious is that he takes other pretenders into account by assuming them, by authenticating them that is to say, by making them two into states through which he passes, I am Louis XVII, but I am also Hervagault and Mathurin Bruno, who claim to be Louis XVII.37 Richemont doesn't identify with Louis XVII, he lays claim to the premium due the person who traverses all the singularities of the series converging around the machine for kidnapping Louis XVII. There is no ego at the center, any more than there are persons distributed on the periphery. Nothing but a series of singularities in the disjunctive network, or intensive states in the conjunctive tissue, and a transpositional subject moving full circle, passing through all the states, triumphing over some as over his enemies, relishing others as his allies, collecting everywhere the fraudulent premium of his avatars. Partial object, a well-situated scar ambiguous besides is better proof than all the memories of childhood that the pretender lacks. The conjunctive synthesis can therefore be expressed, so I am the king. So the kingdom belongs tome. But this me is merely the residual subject that sweeps the circle and concludes a self from its oscillations on the circle. All delirium possesses a world historical, political, and racial content, mixing and sweeping along races, cultures, continents, and kingdoms, some wonder whether this long drift merely constitutes a derivative of Oedipus. The familial order explodes, families are challenged, son, father, mother, sister I mean those families like my own, that owe all to the declaration of the rights of man. When I seek out my most profound opposite, I always encounter my mother and my sister, to see myself related to such German rabble is, as it were, a blasphemy with respect to my doctrine of the eternal return. 
it is a question of knowing if the historico-political, the racial, and the cultural are merely part of a manifest content and formally depend on a work of elaboration, or if, on the contrary, this content should be followed as the thread of latency that the order of families hides from us. Should the rupture with families be taken as a sort of familial romance that would indeed bring us back again to families and refer us to an event or a structural determination inside the family itself? Or is this rather the sign that the problem must be raised in a completely different manner, because it is already raised elsewhere for the schizo himself, outside the family? Are the names of history derivatives of the name of the father, and are the races, cultures, and continents substitutes for daddy mommy, dependent on the Oedipal genealogy? Is history's signifier the dead father? Once again let us consider Judge Schreber's delirium. To be sure, the use of races and the mobilization or notion of history are developed there in a manner totally different from that employed by the authors we have previously mentioned. The fact remains that Schreber's memoirs are filled with the theory of God's chosen peoples, and with the dangers that face the currently chosen people, the Germans, who are threatened by the Jews, the Catholics, and the Slavs. In his intense metamorphoses and passages, Schreber becomes a pupil of the Jesuits, the burgomaster of a city where the Germans are fighting against the Slavs, and a girl defending Alsace against the French. At last he crosses the Aryan gradient or threshold to become a Mongol prince. What does this becoming pupil, burgomaster, girl, and Mongol signify? All paranoiac deliriums stir up similar historical, geographic, and racial masses. The error would lie in concluding, for example, that fascists are mere paranoiacs. This would be an error precisely because, in the current state of affairs, this would still amount to leading the historical and political content of the delirium back to an internal familial determination. And what is even more disturbing to us is the fact that the entirety of this enormous content disappears completely from Freud's analysis, not one trace of it remains, everything is ground, squashed, triangulated into Oedipus, everything is reduced to the father, in such a way as to reveal in the crudest fashion the inadequacies of an Oedipal psychoanalysis. Let us consider another paranoiac delirium as related by Maud Manani, a delirium whose political nature is especially vivid. This example appears all the more striking to us, given our great admiration for Maud Manani's work and for the manner in which she poses anti-psychiatric and institutional problems. Here then we see a man from Martinique who, in the process of his delirium, situates himself in relation to the Arabs and the Algerian War, in relation to the Whites and the May 68 events, and so on, I fell sick from the Algerian problem. I had partaken in the same foolishness as they, sexual pleasure. They adopted me as one of their own race. Mongol blood flows through my veins. Every time I attempted to put something into effect, the Algerians argued against it. I had racist notions. I descend from the Gallic dynasty. By this right I am a man of noble lineage. Let my name be determined, let it be determined scientifically, and then I shall be able to set up a harem 38. Though aware of the character of revolt and of truth for all implied in the psychosis, Maud Manani argues that the origin of the breakup of familial relations in favor of themes that the subject himself declares to be racist, metaphysical, and political, is to be found in the familial structure serving as a matrix. 
This origin would exist therefore in the symbolic void or in the initial foreclosure, foreclusion, of the signifier of the father 39. The name to be determined scientifically, the name that haunts all history, is simply the paternal name. In this case as in many others, the utilization of the Lacanian concept of foreclosure leads to the forced oedipalization of the rebel, the absence of Oedipus is interpreted as a lack with regard to the father, a gaping hole in the structure, next, in the name of this lack, we are referred to the other Oedipal pole, the pole of imaginary identifications within the maternal undifferentiated. The law of the double bind operates relentlessly, ruthlessly, flinging us from one pole to the other, in such a way that what is foreclosed in the symbolic must reappear in the real in a hallucinatory form. But in this fashion the entire historico-political theme gets interpreted as a constellation of imaginary identifications depending on Oedipus, or on that which the subject lacks in order to become Oedipalized. And to be sure, it is not a question of knowing whether or not the familial determinations or interminations play a role. It is obvious that they do. But is this an initial role as symbolic organizer, or symbolic disorganizer, from which the floating contents of the historical delirium would derive, as so many glittering reflections in an imaginary mirror? Is the Trinitary formula for the schizo which leads him, forced and constrained, back to Oedipus this void left by the absence of the father and this cancerous development of the mother and the sister? And yet, as we have seen, if there is one problem that does not exist in schizophrenia, it is the problem of identifications. And if getting well amounts to getting oedipalized, we can easily understand the outbursts of the patient who does not want to be cured, and who treats the analyst as one of the family, then as an ally of the police. Is the schizophrenic sick and cut off from reality because he lacks Oedipus, because he is lacking in something only to be found in Oedipus or on the contrary is he sick by virtue of the Oedipalization he is unable to bear, and around which everything combines in order to force him to submit, social repression even before psychoanalysis? The schizophrenic egg is like the biological egg, they have a similar history, and our knowledge of them has run up against the same sort of difficulties and illusions. During the development of the differentiation of the egg, it was first believed that veritable organizers decided the destiny of the parts. But it was soon noticed that on the one hand, all kinds of other variable substances had the same action as the envisaged organizing stimulus, and that on the other hand, the parts themselves had specific abilities and potentials for development that did not exist for the stimulus, experiments with grafting. Whence the idea that the stimuli are not organizers, but mere inductors, ultimately, the nature of these inductors is a matter of indifference. Many different kinds of substances and materials, when killed, boiled, and pulverized, have the same effect. It was the beginnings of the development that favored the illusion, the simplicity of the beginning consisting, for example, of cellular divisions could lead one to believe in some sort of adequation between the inductor and what is induced. But we are well aware that, when considered in terms of its beginnings, a thing is always poorly judged because, in order to become apparent, it is forced to simulate structural states and to slip into state of forces that serve it as masks. What is more, from the beginning we can see that it makes use of masks in an entirely different manner, and that underneath the mask and by means of it, 
it already invests the terminal forms and the specific higher states whose integrity it will subsequently establish. Such is the history of Oedipus, the parental figures are in no way organizers, but rather inductors or stimuli of varying, vague import that trigger processes of an entirely different nature, processes that are endowed with what amounts to an indifference with regard to the stimulus. Doubtless one can believe that, in the beginning, the stimulus the Oedipal inductor is a real organizer. But believing is an operation of a conscious or preconscious nature, an extrinsic perception rather than an operation of the unconscious upon itself. From the beginning of the life of the child, it is already an altogether different undertaking that pierces the mask of Oedipus, a different flow running through the openings in the mask, a different adventure that of desiring production. Yet it cannot be said that psychoanalysis was unaware of this in a certain respect. In his theory of the primal fantasy, of the traces of an archaic heredity, and the endogenous sources of the superego, Freud constantly asserts that the active factors are not the real parents, nor even the parents as the child imagines them. Such is also the case, and all the more so, for Lacan's disciples, when they take up the distinction between the imaginary and the symbolic, when they oppose the name of the father to the imago, and the foreclosure concerning the signifier to a real deficiency or absence of the paternal personage. There is no better example than this to show that the parental figures are indifferent inductors and that the true organizer is elsewhere on the side of what is induced, not on that of the inductor. But that is just the beginning of the question, the same question as in the case of the biological egg. For under these conditions is there no solution but to revive the notion of a terrain, whether in the form of a phylogenetic innateness of preformation, or a cultural symbolic a priori linked to prematuration. Worse yet, it is clear that by invoking such an a priori one does not by any means abandon familialism in the strictest sense, which burdens all of psychoanalysis, on the contrary, one thereby plunges deeper into familialism and generalizes it. Parents have been put in their true places within the workings of the unconscious, as inductors of an indifferent nature, yet the role of organizer continues to be entrusted to symbolic or structural elements that are still part of the family and its Oedipal matrix. Once again one is caught, without a way out, it is simply that the means have been found to render the family transcendent. There we have it the incurable familialism of psychoanalysis, enclosing the unconscious within Oedipus, cutting off all vital flows, crushing desiring production, conditioning the patient to respond daddy-mommy, and to always consume daddy-mommy. Thus Foucault was entirely right in saying that, in a certain sense, the psychoanalyst completed and perfected what the psychiatry of 19th century asylums, with Pinal and Tuke, had set out to do, to fuse madness with the parental complex, to link it to the half-real, half-imaginary dialectic of the family, to constitute for the madman a microcosm symbolizing the massive structures of bourgeois society and its values, relations of family-child, transgression-punishment, madness-disorder. To arrange things so that disalienation goes the same route as alienation, with Oedipus at both ends, to establish the moral authority of the doctor as father and judge, family and law, and finally to culminate in the following paradox, while the victim of mental illness is entirely alienated in the real person of his doctor, the doctor dissipates the reality of the mental illness in the critical concept of madness. Luminous Pages
let us add that by enveloping the illness in a familial complex internal to the patient, and then the familial complex itself in the transference or the doctor-patient relationship, Freudian psychoanalysis made a somewhat intensive use of the family. Granted, this use distorted the nature of the intensive quantities in the unconscious. Nevertheless it still respected in part the general principle of a production of these quantities. When it became necessary once again to confront psychosis directly, however, the family was immediately reopened in extension, and was in itself considered as the indicator for measuring the forces of alienation and disalienation. In this manner the study of the families of schizophrenics has breathed new life into Oedipus by making it reign over the extensive order of an expanded family, where not only each person would combine to a greater or lesser extent his or her triangle with the triangle of others, but where the entirety of the extended family also would oscillate between the two poles of a healthy triangulation, structuring and differentiating, and forms of perverted triangles, bringing about their fusion in the realm of the undifferentiated. Jacques Hockman analyzes some interesting varieties of psychotic families under the same fusionist postulate, the properly fusionist family, where differentiations are no longer made except between the inside and the outside, those who are outside the family, the divisive, scissional, family that establishes blocks, clans, or coalitions within itself, the tubular family, where the triangle multiplies endlessly, each member having his own triangle that interlocks with others without ones. Being able to discern the limits of a nuclear family, the foreclosing family, where differentiation is both included and warded off in the person of one of its members who has been eliminated, rendered null, and foreclosed. Point 40. The doctor, as an alienating figure, remains the key to psychoanalysis. Perhaps because it did not suppress this ultimate structure, and because it referred all the others to it, psychoanalysis has not been able, will not be able, to hear the voices of unreason, nor to decipher in themselves the signs of the madman. Psychoanalysis can unravel some of the forms of madness, it remains a stranger to the sovereign enterprise of unreason, pages 254,274, 276 to 78. We can understand how such a concept as foreclosure operates within this extensive framework of a family where several generations at least three form the condition of fabrication of a psychotic, as for example when the troubles a mother has with regard to her own father lead to the son's inability, in turn, to even posit his desire toward his mother. Whence the strange notion that if a psychotic escapes the Oedipal apparatus, this is solely due to the fact that he is doubly embedded there, to the second power, in a field of extension that includes the grandparents. The problem of the cure then becomes rather similar to an operation of differential calculus, where one proceeds by way of depotentialization in order to rediscover the primary functions and re-establish the characteristic or nuclear triangle always a holy trinity, the means of access to a three-sided situation. It is clear that this extended familialism, wherein the family receives the very forces of alienation and disalienation, carries with it a renunciation of the fundamental positions of psychoanalysis concerning sexuality, despite the formal conservation of an analytic vocabulary. A veritable regression in favor of a taxonomy of families. This is clearly visible in the projects of community psychiatry or of so-called familial psychotherapy, 
which effectively break apart asylum existence while nonetheless still maintaining all the presuppositions of the asylum, and basically renewing the thrust of 19th century psychiatry according to the slogan put forward by Hockman, from the family to the institution of the hospital, from the institution of the hospital to the familial institution, a therapeutic return to the family. But even within the progressive or revolutionary sectors of institutional analysis on the one hand, and anti-psychiatry on the other, the danger of this familialism in extension is ever-present, conforming to the double impasse of an extended Oedipus, just as much in the diagnostic of pathogenic families in themselves as in the constitution of therapeutic quasi-families. Once it has been said that it is no longer a matter of reforming cotters of familial and social adaptation or integration, but rather of instituting original forms of active groups, the question arises as to what extent these core groups resemble artificial families, and to what extent they still lend themselves to edipalization. These questions have been analyzed in depth by Jean Uri. They demonstrate how a revolutionary psychiatry broke in vain with the ideals of community. Adaptation, with everything that Maud Manini calls the adaptation police force, since at every moment it still risks being thrust back into the framework of a structural Oedipus whose deficiencies are diagnosed but whose integrity is restored, a holy trinity that continues to strangle desiring production and suffocate its problems. The political, cultural, world historical, and racial content is left behind, crushed in the Oedipal treadmill. This is because psychiatrists persist in treating the family as a matrix, or better still as a microcosm, an expressive milieu that provides its own justifications, and that however capable of expressing the action of the alienating forces mediates them precisely by suppressing the true categories of production in the machines of desire. It seems to us that such a viewpoint is present even in Cooper. In this respect Lang is better able to disengage himself from familialism, thanks to the resources of a flux from the Orient. Cooper writes, families mediate social reality to their children. If the social reality in question is rife with alienated social forms, then this alienation will be mediated to the individual child and will be experienced as estrangement in the family relationships. For example he may say that his mind is controlled by an electrical machine or by men from outer space. These constructions, however, are largely embodiments of the family process, which has the illusion of substantiality but which is none other than the alienated form of the action of praxis of the family members that literally dominates the mind of the psychotic member. These metaphysical men from outer space are the literal mother, father, and sibling who sit around the breakfast table with the so-called psychotic patient 41. Even the essential hypothesis of anti-psychiatry, which ultimately posits an identity in nature between social alienation and mental alienation, must be understood in terms of a maintained familialism, and not in terms of a refutation of this familialism. For it is to the extent that the family microcosm, the family social indicator, expresses social alienation that it is believed to organize mental alienation in the mind of its own members or its psychotic member. And among all the members, who is the real psychotic? With his general conception of microcosm-macrocosm relationships, Bergson brought about a discrete revolution that deserves further consideration. Likening the living to a microcosm is an ancient platitude. But if the living organism was thought to be similar to the world, this was attributed to the fact that it was or tended to be an isolated system, naturally closed, 
the comparison between microcosm and macrocosm was thus a comparison between two closed figures, one of which expressed the other and was inscribed within the other. At the beginning of creative evolution, Bergson completely alters the scope of the comparison by opening up both ends. If the living being resembles the world, this is true, on the contrary, insofar as it opens itself to the opening of the world, if it is a whole, this is true to the extent that the whole, of the world as of the living being, is always in the process of becoming, developing, coming into being or advancing, and inscribing itself within a temporal dimension that is irreducible and non-closed. We believe that this is also true in the case of the family-society relationship. There is no Oedipal triangle, Oedipus is always open in an open social field. Oedipus opens to the four winds, to the four corners of the social field, not even 3 plus 1, but 4 plus n. A poorly closed triangle, a porous or seeping triangle, an exploded triangle from which the flows of desire escape in the direction of other territories. It is strange that we had to wait for the dreams of colonized peoples in order to see that, on the vertices of the pseudo-triangle, mommy was dancing with the missionary, daddy was being fucked by the tax collector, while the self was being beaten by a white man. It is precisely this pairing of the parental figures with agents of another nature, their locking embrace similar to that of wrestlers, that keeps the triangle from closing up again, from being valid in itself, and from claiming to express or represent this different nature of the agents that are in question in the unconscious itself. When Franz Fanon encounters a case of persecution psychosis linked to the death of the mother, he first asks himself if he has to deal with an unconscious guilt complex following on the death of the mother, as Freud had described in Mourning and Melancholia. But he soon learns that the mother has been killed by a French soldier, and that the subject himself has murdered the wife of a colonist whose disemboweled ghost perpetually appears before him, carrying along with it and tearing apart the memory of the mother. Point 42 It could always be said that these extreme situations of war trauma, of colonization, of dire poverty, and so on, are unfavorable to the construction of the Oedipal apparatus and that it is precisely because of this that these Situations favor a psychotic development or explosion but we have a strong feeling that the problem lies elsewhere. Apart from the fact that a certain degree of comfort found in the bourgeois family is admittedly necessary to turn out Oedipalized subjects, the question of knowing what is actually invested in the comfortable conditions of a supposedly normal or normative Oedipus is pushed still further into the background. The revolutionary is the first to have the right to say, Oedipus. Never heard of it? For the disjointed fragments of Oedipus remain stuck to all the corners of the historical social field, as a battlefield and not a scene from bourgeois theater. Too bad if the psychoanalysts roar their disapproval at this point. Fanon pointed out that troubled times had unconscious effects not only on the active militants, but also on those claiming to be neutral and to remain outside the affair, uninvolved in politics. The same could also be said with respect to apparently peaceful times, what a grotesque error to think that the unconscious as child is acquainted only with daddy-mommy, and that it doesn't know in its own way that its father has a boss who is not a father's father, or moreover that its father himself is a boss who is not a father. Therefore we formulate the following rule, which we feel to be applicable in all cases, the father and the mother exist only as fragments, 
and are never organized into a figure or a structure able both to represent the unconscious, and to represent in it the various agents of the collectivity, rather, they always shatter into fragments that come into contact with these agents, meet them face to face, square off with them, or settle the differences with them as in hand-to-hand -hand combat. The father, the mother, and the self are at grips with, and directly coupled to, the elements of the political and historical situation the soldier, the cop, the occupier, the collaborator, the radical, the resistor, the boss, the boss's wife who constantly break all triangulations, and who prevent the entire situation from falling back on the familial complex and becoming internalized in it. In a word, the family is never a microcosm in the sense of an autonomous figure, even when inscribed in a larger circle that it is said to mediate and express. The family is by nature eccentric, dissentiered. We are told of fusional, divisive, tubular, and foreclosing families. But what produces the hiatuses, cookwees, and their distribution that indeed keep the family from being an interior? There is always an uncle from America, a brother who went bad, an aunt who took off with a military man, a cousin out of work, bankrupt, or a victim of the crash, an anarchist grandfather, a grandmother in the hospital, crazy or senile. The family does not engender its own ruptures. Families are filled with gaps and transect by breaks that are not familial, the commune, the Dreyfus affair, religion and atheism, the Spanish Civil War, the rise of fascism, Stalinism, the Vietnam War, May 68 all these things form complexes of the unconscious, more effective than everlasting Oedipus. And the unconscious is indeed at issue here. If in fact there are structures, they do not exist in the mind, in the shadow of a fantastic phallus distributing the lacunae, the passages, and the articulations. Structures exist in the immediate impossible real. As Witold Grombraus says, the structuralists search for their structures in culture. As for myself, I look for them in the immediate reality. My way of seeing things was in direct relationship to the events of the times, Hitlerism, Stalinism, Fascism. I was fascinated by the grotesque and terrifying forms that surfaced in the sphere of the interhuman, destroying all that was held dear until then 43. Hellenists were right to remind us that, even in the case of worthy Oedipus, it was already a matter of politics. They are simply wrong in concluding from this that the libido has nothing to do with any of it. Quite the contrary, what is invested by the libido throughout the disjoint elements of Oedipus especially given the fact that these elements never form a mental structure that is autonomous and expressive are these extrafamilial, subfamilial gaps and breaks, couillures, these forms of social production in conjunction with desiring production. Schizoanalysis therefore does not hide the fact that it is a political and social psychoanalysis, a militant analysis, not because it would go about generalizing Oedipus in culture, under the ridiculous conditions that have been the norm until now. It is a militant analysis, on the contrary, because it proposes to demonstrate the existence of an unconscious libidinal investment of socio-historical production, distinct from the conscious investments coexisting with it. Proust is not wrong in saying that, far from being the author of an intimate work, he goes further than the proponents of a populist or proletarian art who are content to describe the social and the political in willfully expressive works. For his part, 
he is interested in the manner in which the Dreyfus affair and then World War I cut across families, introducing into them new breaks and new connections resulting in a modification of the heterosexual and homosexual libido, in the decomposed milieu of the Guermantes, for example. It is the function of the libido to invest the social field in unconscious forms, thereby hallucinating all history, reproducing in delirium entire civilizations, races, and continents, and intensely feeling the becoming of the world. There is no signifying chain without a Chinaman, an Arab, and a black who drop into trouble the night of a white paranoiac. Schizoanalysis sets out to undo the expressive Oedipal unconscious, always artificial, repressive and repressed, mediated by the family, in order to attain the immediate productive unconscious. Yes, the family is a stimulus but a stimulus that is qualitatively indifferent, an inductor that is neither an organizer nor a disorganizer. As for the response, it always comes from another direction. If there is indeed language, language, it is on the side of the response, not the stimulus. Even Oedipal psychoanalysis recognized the indifference of the effective parental images, the irreducibility of the response to the stimulation performed by these images. But it contented itself with understanding the response by starting from an expressive symbolism that was still familial, instead of interpreting it in an unconscious system of production as such, analytical economy. The great argument of familialism is, at least in the beginning. This argument may be explicitly formulated, but it also persists implicitly in theories that nevertheless refuse the viewpoint of Genesis. At least in the beginning, this argument runs, the unconscious is expressed in a state of familial relations and constellations where the real, the imaginary, and the symbolic intermingle. In this conception, the metaphysical and social relations arise afterward, in the manner of a beyond. And since the beginning always proceeds by twos this is even the necessary condition for rendering escape impossible a first pre-edible beginning is invoked, the primitive non-differentiation of the most precocious stages of the personality in the relationship with the mother, then a second beginning is invoked, Oedipus itself with the law of the father and the exclusive differentiations that this law prescribes at the heart of the family, and finally latency, the celebrated latency, after which the beyond begins. But since this beyond consists in duping others into taking the same path, the children to come, and also since the first beginning is said to be pre-Oedipal only to indicate that it already belongs to Oedipus as a referential axis, it is quite clear that the two ends of Oedipus have simply been closed, and that the beyond and the afterward will always be interpreted in terms of Oedipus, in relation to Oedipus, within the framework of Oedipus. Everything will be reduced to Oedipus, as the discussions on the comparative role of childhood factors and actual factors in neurosis bear out, how could it be otherwise, so long as the actual factor is conceived of in this form of the afterward? But we know in point of fact that the actual factors are there from childhood, and that they determine the libidinal investments in terms of breaks and connections that they introduce into the family. Over the heads of the members of the family, and underneath, it is desiring production and social production that manifest, through the childhood experience, their identical natures and their differing regimes. In this regard let us consider three important works about children, L'Enfant by Jules Vallas, Bas Lakers by Georges Darien, Mort accredited by L.F. Celine. In them we see how bread, money, 
dwelling place, social promotion, bourgeois and revolutionary values, wealth and poverty, oppression and revolt, social classes, political events, metaphysical and collective problems what does it mean to be able to breathe? Why be poor? Why are there rich people, form the object of investments in which the parents merely have a role as agents of a special production or anti-production, always grappling with other agents that they express all the less as they are increasingly at grips with them in the heaven and hell of the child. And the child says, why? Freud's rat man does not wait until he is a man to invest the rich woman and the poor woman who constitute the actual factor of his obsession. For inadmissible reasons, the existence of an infantile sexuality is denied, but for hardly more admissible reasons, this sexuality is reduced to desiring mommy and wanting the place of the father. The Freudian blackmail is this, either you recognize the Oedipal character of infantile sexuality, or you abandon all positions of sexuality. And yet, not even in the shadow of a transcendent phallus are the unconscious effects of a signified established throughout the determinations of a social field, on the contrary, it is the libidinal investment of these determinations that situates their particular use in desiring production, and the comparative operation of this production with social production, whence derive the state of desire and its repression, the distribution of the agents, and the degree of edipalization of sexuality. Lakin explains well how, in terms of the crises and the ruptures, couriers, within science, there is a drama for the scientist that at times goes as far as madness, and that would have no way of including itself in the Oedipal apparatus, unless by calling it into question by way of a consequence. Point 44 In this sense every child is a little scientist, a little canter. Go back through the course of the ages, you will never find a child caught in a familial order that is autonomous, expressive, or signifying. Even the nursing child, in his games as in his feedings, his chains, and his meditations, is already caught up in an immediate desiring production where the parents play the role of partial objects, witnesses, reporters, and agents, in a process that outflanks them on all sides, and places desire in an immediate relationship with a historical and social reality. It is true that nothing is pre-Oedipal, and that we must take Oedipus back to the earliest age, but within the order of a repression of the unconscious. It is equally true that everything within the order of production is anoedipal, and that there are non-edipal, anoedipal currents that begin as early as Oedipus and continue just as long, with another rhythm, in a different mode of operation, in another dimension, with other uses of synthesis that feed the auto-production of the unconscious the unconscious as orphan, the playful unconscious, the meditative and social unconscious. The Oedipal operation consists in establishing a constellation of biunivocal relations between the agents of social production, reproduction, and anti-production on the one hand, and the agents of the so-called natural reproduction of the family on the other. This operation is called an application. It is as if a tablecloth were being folded, as if its four, plus n, corners were reduced to three, plus one, to designate the transcendent factor performing the operation. From that moment it is a foregone conclusion that the collective agents will be interpreted as derivatives of, or substitutes for, parental figures, in a system of equivalence that rediscovers everywhere the father, the mother, and the ego. And one merely pushes the difficulty into the background when one considers the system as a whole and then makes it depend on the transcendent term, 
the phallus. There we have a faulty use of the conjunctive synthesis, leading to the statement, so it was your father, so it was your mother. It is not at all surprising that only afterward is it discovered that all of this was the father and the mother, since this is assumed to be the case from the beginning, but is subsequently forgotten repressed, though still subject to a later rediscovery in relation to more recent developments. Whence the magical formula that characterizes by univocalization the flattening of the polyvocal reel in favor of a symbolic relationship between two articulations, so that is what this meant. Everything is made to begin with Oedipus, by means of explanation, with all the more certainty as one has reduced everything to Oedipus by means of application. Only in appearance is Oedipus a beginning, either as a historical or prehistorical origin, or as a structural foundation. In reality it is a completely ideological beginning, for the sake of ideology. Oedipus is always and solely an aggregate of destination fabricated to meet the requirements of an aggregate of departure constituted by a social formation. It can be applied to everything, in that the agents and relations of social production, and the libidinal investments corresponding to them, are made to conform to the figures of familial reproduction. In the aggregate of departure there is the social formation, or rather the social formations, the races, the classes, the continents, the peoples, the kingdoms, the sovereignties, Joan of Arc and the great Mongol, Luther and the Aztec serpent. In the aggregate of destination, there remains only daddy, mommy and me. Thus it must be said of Oedipus as well as of desiring production, it is at the end, not at the beginning. But not at all in the same fashion. We have seen that desiring production was the limit of social production, always thwarted in the capitalist formation, the body without organs at the edge of the deterritorialized socius, the desert at the gates of the city. But it is urgent, it is essential that the limit be displaced, rendered inoffensive, and that it pass or seem to pass into the social formation itself. Schizophrenia or desiring production is the boundary between the molar organization and the molecular multiplicity of desire, this limit of deterritorialization must now pass into the interior of the molar organization, and it must be applied to a factitious and subjugated territoriality. We are now able to surmise what Oedipus signifies, it displaces the limit, it internalizes the limit. Rather a society of neurotics than one successful schizophrenic who has not been made autistic. Oedipus, the incomparable instrument of gregariousness, is the ultimate private and subjugated territoriality of European man. Moreover the displaced, exorcised limit or border shifts to the interior of Oedipus, between its two poles. One word here on the disgrace of psychoanalysis in history and politics. The procedure is well known, two figures are made to appear, the great man and the crowd. One then claims to make history with these two entities, these two puppets, the great crustacean and the crazy invertebrate. Oedipus is placed at the beginning. On the one side there is the great man defined Oedipally, so he killed the father, in a murder without end, either to annihilate him and identify with the mother, or to internalize him, to take his place or reach a reconciliation, with a host of variations in detail that correspond to neurotic, psychotic, perverse, or normal solutions, that is to say solutions of sublimation. In any case the great man is already great because, for good or for evil, he has found a certain original solution to the Oedipal conflict.
Hitler annihilates the father and unleashes in him the forces of the bad mother, Luther internalizes the father and reaches a compromise with the superego. On the other side there is the crowd, also defined Oedipally, by means of parental images of a second order, this time collective, the encounter can therefore take place between Luther and the 16th century Christians, or between Hitler and the German people, with corresponding elements that do not necessarily imply identity, Hitler plays the role of father through homosexual transfusion and in relation to the female crowd, Luther plays the role of woman in relation to the god of the Christians. Naturally, to ensure against the historian's justified anger, the psychoanalyst specifies that he is concerned only with a certain causal order, that one must take other causes into account, but that he alone cannot do everything. Besides, he deals just enough with other causes so as to give us a foretaste, he takes into account the institutions of a particular period, from the 16th century church to 20th century capitalist power, if only to see in them parental images of yet another order, associating the father and the mother, who will then be dissociated and otherwise regrouped within the action of the great man and the crowd. It hardly matters whether the tone of these books is orthodox Freudian, culturalist, or Jungian. Books like those are nauseating. Let's not dismiss them by saying that they belong to the distant past of psychoanalysis, similar books a lot of them are still written today. Let's not say that it is merely a question of a careless use of Oedipus, what other use could be made of Oedipus? Nor is it a case of an ambiguous dimension of applied psychoanalysis, for all Oedipus Oedipus in and of itself is already an application, in the strictest sense of the word. And when the best psychoanalysts forbid themselves historico-political applications, we can't say things are much better, since the analysts retreat to the rock of castration presented as the locus of an untenable truth that is irreducible, they closet themselves in a phallocentrism that leads them to think of the analytic activity as always having to evolve within a familial microcosm, and they continue to treat the libido's direct investments of the social field as simple imaginary dependencies on Oedipus, where it becomes necessary to denounce a fusional dream, a fantasy of a return to oneness. Castration, they say, is what separates us from politics, is what makes for our originality as analysts we who do not forget that society too is triangular and symbolic. If it is true that Oedipus is obtained by reduction or application, it presupposes in itself a certain kind of libidinal investment of the social field, of the production and the formation of this field. There is no more an individual Oedipus than there is an individual fantasy. Oedipus is a means of integration into the group, in both the adaptive form of its own reproduction that makes it pass from one generation to the next, and in its unadapted neurotic stasis that block desire at prearranged impasses. Oedipus also flourishes in subjugated groups, where an established order is invested through the group's own repressive forms. And it is not the forms of the subjugated group that depend on Oedipal projections and identifications, but the reverse, it is Oedipal applications that depend on the determinations of the subjugated group as an aggregate of departure and on their libidinal investment, from the age of 13 I've worked hard, rising on the social ladder, getting promotions, being a part of the exploiters. There is therefore a segregative use of the conjunctive syntheses of the unconscious, a use that does not coincide with divisions between classes, although it is an incomparable weapon in the service of a dominating class, 
it is this use that brings about the feeling of indeed being one of us, of being part of a superior race threatened by enemies from outside. Thus the little white pioneer's son, the Irish Protestant who commemorates the victory of his ancestors, the fascist who belongs to the master race. Oedipus depends on this sort of nationalistic, religious, racist sentiment, and not the reverse, it is not the father who is projected onto the boss, but the boss who is applied to the father, either in order to tell us you will not surpass your father, or you will surpass him to find our forefathers. Lakin has demonstrated in a profound way the link between Oedipus and segregation. Not, however, in the sense where segregation would be a consequence of Oedipus, subjacent to the fraternity of the brothers once the father is dead. On the contrary, the segregative use is a precondition of Oedipus, to the extent that the social field is not reduced to the familial tie except by presupposing an enormous archaism, an incarnation of the race in person or in spirit, yes, I am one of you. It is not a question of ideology. There is an unconscious libidinal investment of the social field that coexists, but does not necessarily coincide, with the preconscious investments, or with what the preconscious investments ought to be. That is why, when subjects, individuals, or groups act manifestly counter to their class interests when they rally to the interests and ideals of a class that their own objective situation should lead them to combat it is not enough to say, they were fooled, the masses have been fooled. It is not an ideological problem, a problem of failing to recognize, or of being subject to, an illusion. It is a problem of desire, and desire is part of the infrastructure. Preconscious investments are made, or should be made, according to the interests of the opposing classes. But unconscious investments are made according to positions of desire and uses of synthesis, very different from the interests of the subject, individual, or collective, who desires. These investments of an unconscious nature can ensure the general submission to a dominant class by making cuts, couriers, and segregations pass over into a social field, insofar as it is effectively invested by desire and no longer by interests. A form of social production and reproduction, along with its economic and financial mechanisms, its political formations, and so on, can be desired as such, in whole, or in part, independently of the interests of the desiring subject. It was not by means of a metaphor, even a paternal metaphor, that Hitler was able to sexually arouse the fascists. It is not by means of a metaphor that a banking or stock market transaction, a claim, a coupon, a credit, is able to arouse people who are not necessarily bankers. And what about the effects of money that grows, money that produces more money? There are socio-economic complexes that are also veritable complexes of the unconscious, and that communicate a voluptuous wave from the top to the bottom of their hierarchy, the military-industrial complex. An ideology, Oedipus, and the phallus have nothing to do with this, because they depend on it rather than being its impetus. For it is a matter of flows, of stocks, of breaks in and fluctuations of flows, desire is present wherever something flows and runs, carrying along with it interested subjects but also drunken or slumbering subjects toward lethal destinations. Hence the goal of schizoanalysis, to analyze the specific nature of the libidinal investments in the economic and political spheres, and thereby to show how, in the subject who desires, 
desire can be made to desire its own repression whence the role of the death instinct in the circuit connecting desire to the social sphere. All this happens, not in ideology, but well beneath it. An unconscious investment of a fascist or reactionary type can exist alongside a conscious revolutionary investment. Inversely, it can happen rarely that a revolutionary investment on the level of desire coexists with a reactionary investment conforming to a conscious interest. In any case conscious and unconscious investments are not of the same type, even when they coincide or are superimposed on each other. We define the reactionary unconscious investment as the investment that conforms to the interest of the dominant class, but operates on its own account, according to the terms of desire, through the segregative use of the conjunctive synthesis from which Oedipus is derived, I am of the superior race. The revolutionary unconscious investment is such that desire, still in its own mode, cuts across the interest of the dominated, exploited classes, and causes flows to move that are capable of breaking apart both the segregations and their Oedipal applications flows capable of hallucinating history, of reanimating the races in delirium, of setting continents ablaze. No, I am not of your kind, I am the outsider and the deterritorialized, I am of a race inferior for all eternity. I am a beast, a negro, 45. There again it is a question of an intense potential for investment and counter-investment in the unconscious. Oedipus disintegrates because its very conditions have disintegrated. The nomadic and polyvocal use of the conjunctive synthesis is in opposition to the segregative and biunivocal use. Delirium has something like two poles, racist and racial, paranoiac segregative and schizonomatic. And between the two, ever so many subtle, uncertain shiftings where the unconscious itself oscillates between its reactionary charge and its revolutionary potential. Even Trevor finds himself to be the great Mongol when he breaks through the Aryan segregation. Whence the ambiguity in the texts of great authors, when they develop the theme of races, as rich in ambiguity as destiny itself. Here schizoanalysis must unravel the thread. For reading a text is never a scholarly exercise in search of what is signified, still less a highly textual exercise in search of a signifier. Rather it is a productive use of the literary machine, a montage of desiring machines, a schizoid exercise that extracts from the text its revolutionary force. The exclamation so it's or the meditation of a jitter on race, in an essential relationship with madness. 6. A recapitulation of the three synth essays. Stupefying Oedipus, inexhaustible and ever-present. We are told that the father died over a period of thousands of years, well, well, and that the internalization corresponding to the paternal image was produced during the Paleolithic right up until the start of the Neolithic, approximately 8,000 years ago 46. One analyzes historically or one doesn't. But honestly, as to the death of the father, news doesn't travel very fast, it would be a mistake to embark Nietzsche on that particular voyage through history. For Nietzsche is not the kind to ruminate over the death of the father, and spend all his Paleolithic period internalizing him. On the contrary, Nietzsche is exceedingly tired of all these stories revolving around the death of the father, the death of God, and wants to put an end to the interminable discourses of this nature, discourses already in vogue in his Hegelian epoch. Alas, he was wrong, the discourses have continued. 
but Nietzsche wanted us finally to pass on to serious things. He gives us twelve or thirteen versions of the death of God, for good measure and to be done with it, so as to render the event comical. And he explains that strictly speaking this event has no importance whatever, that it merely concerns the latest Pope, God dead or not dead, the Father dead or not dead, it amounts to the same thing, since the same psychic repression, refoulement, and the same social repression repression, continue unabated, here in the name of God or a living father, there in the name of man or the dead father. Nietzsche says that what is important is not the news that God is dead, but the time this news takes to bear fruit. Here the psychoanalyst perks up his ears, believing he has heard a familiar chord, it is well known that the unconscious takes a lot of time to digest a bit of news, one can even quote some texts of Freud on the unconscious being ignorant of time, conserving its objects like an Egyptian tomb. But that is not at all what Nietzsche is saying, he does not mean that the death of God spends a long time plodding around in the unconscious. He means that what takes so long in coming to consciousness is the news that the death of God makes no difference to the unconscious. The fruits of this news are not the consequences brought about by the death of God, but this other news that the death of God is of no consequence. In other terms, that God and the Father never existed, or if they did, it was so long ago, perhaps during the Paleolithic. All they did was kill a dead man, from time immemorial. The fruits of the news of the death of God do away with the flower of his death as well as the bud of his life. For, alive or dead, it is still a question of belief, the element of belief has not been abandoned. The announcement of the Father's death constitutes a last belief, a belief by virtue of non-belief about which Nietzsche says, this violence always manifests the need for a belief, for a prop, for a structure. Oedipus as structure. Engels paid homage to the genius of Bakofen, for having recognized in myth the figures of a maternal and a paternal law, their struggles and their relationships. But Engels slips in a reproach that changes everything, it really seems as if Bakofen believes all this, that he believes in myths, in the Furies, Apollo and Athena.47 The same reproach applies even better to psychoanalysts, it would seem that they believe in all of this in myth, in Oedipus, and castration. They reply, the question is not one of knowing whether we believe in this, but whether or not the unconscious itself believes in it. But what is this unconscious when reduced to the state of belief? Who injects it with belief? Psychoanalysis cannot become a rigorous discipline unless it accepts putting belief in parentheses, which is to say a materialist reduction of Oedipus as an ideological form. It is not a matter of saying that Oedipus is a false belief, but rather that belief is necessarily something false that diverts and suffocates effective production. That is why seers are the least believing of men. When we relate desire to Oedipus, we are condemned to ignore the productive nature of desire, we condemn desire to vague dreams or imaginations that are merely conscious expressions of it, we relate it to independent existences the father, the mother, the begetters that do not yet comprise their elements as internal elements of desire. The question of the father is like that of God, born of an abstraction, it assumes the link to be already broken between man and nature, man, and the world, so that man must be produced as man by something exterior to nature and to man. On this point Nietzsche makes a remark completely akin to those of Marx or Engels, 
we now laugh when we find man and world placed beside one another, separated by the sublime presumption of the little word and. 48. Coextensiveness is another matter entirely, the coextension of man and nature, a circular movement by which the unconscious, always remaining subject, produces and reproduces itself. The unconscious does not follow the paths of a generation progressing, or regressing, from one body to another, your father, your father's father, and so on. The organized body is the object of reproduction by generation, it is not its subject. The sole subject of reproduction is the unconscious itself, which holds to the circular form of production. Sexuality is not a means in the service of generation, rather, the generation of bodies is in the service of sexuality as an auto-production of the unconscious. Sexuality does not represent a premium for the ego, in exchange for its subordination to the process of generation, on the contrary, generation is the ego's solace, its prolongation, the passage from one body to another through which the unconscious does no more than reproduce itself in itself. Indeed, in this sense we must say the unconscious has always been an orphan that is, it has engendered itself in the identity of nature and man, of the world and man. The question of the Father, the question of God, is what has become impossible, a matter of indifference, so true is it that to affirm or deny such a being amounts to the same thing, or to live it or kill it, one and the same misconception, contrasens, concerning the nature of the unconscious. But psychoanalysts are bent on producing man abstractly, that is to say ideologically, for culture. It is Oedipus who produces man in this fashion, and who gives a structure to the false movement of infinite progression and regression, your father, and your father's father, a snowball gathering speed as it moves from Oedipus all the way to the father of the primal horde, to God, and the Paleolithic age. It is Oedipus who makes us man, for better or for worse, say those who would make fools of us all. The tone may vary, but the message remains basically the same, you will not escape Oedipus, your sole choice is between the neurotic outlet and the non-neurotic outlet. The tone may be that of the scandalized psychoanalyst, the psychoanalyst as cop, those who do not bow to the imperialism of Oedipus are dangerous deviants, leftists who ought to be handed over to social and police repression, they talk too much and are lacking in Annaly, Dr. Gerard Mendel, Dr. Stephen. What kind of disquieting play on words is it that can make the analyst a promoter of Annaly? Or there is the psychoanalyst as priest, the pious psychoanalyst who is forever chanting the incurable insufficiency of being, don't you see that Oedipus saves us from Oedipus, it is our agony but also our ecstasy, depending on whether we live it neurotically or live its structure, it is the mother of the holy faith, J. M. Poyer. Or the techno-psychoanalyst, the reform psychoanalyst obsessed with the triangle, who wraps the splendid gifts of civilization in Oedipus identity, manic depression, and liberty in an infinite progression, through Oedipus the individual learns to live the triangular situation, the token of his identity, and at the same time he discovers sometimes in a depressive mode, sometimes in a mode of exaltation his fundamental alienation, his irremediable solitude, the price of his liberty. The basic structure of the Oedipal apparatus must not only be generalized in time so as to account for all the triangular experiences of the child and his parents, 
it must be generalized in space to include those triangular relations other than the parent-child relations 49. The unconscious poses no problem of meaning, solely problems of use. The question posed by desire is not what does it mean? But rather how does it work? How do these machines, these desiring machines, work yours and mine? With what sort of breakdowns as a part of their functioning? How do they pass from one body to another? How are they attached to the body without organs? What occurs when their mode of operation confronts the social machines? Attractable gear is greased, or on the contrary an infernal machine is made ready? What are the connections, what are the disjunctions, the conjunctions, what use is made of the synthesis? It represents nothing, but it produces. It means nothing, but it works. Desire makes its entry with the general collapse of the question what does it mean?